listeners, PJ Frightful here. As always, sitting in my studio, been thinking about a man lately named Charles Foley. You might recognize the name, was in the news last week after that terrible incident. But I knew Charles Foley before then. A couple months ago, I bumped into Charles. Things were starting to go bad for him back then, but he didn't let on. Still, I could tell there was something on his mind. I don't mean to brag, dear listeners, but old PJ can always tell when someone's feeling haunted by something. He told me a story. Last summer, Charles and his wife, Lindsay, and their kids, Madeline and Eli, were driving home from a family reunion. A truck jackknifed on the highway, taking out five other cars. Oh, Charles and his family were nowhere near the crash, don't you worry. They were stuck in the resulting gridlock for two hours, the young kids in the back seat looking miserable, and Charles's wife not happy. Finally, Charles saw a detour open up and got off the highway. He took a couple of side streets and then got on Haycook Road, knowing that would take him all the way back to town. It wasn't as fast or efficient as the highway, Charles knew. Haycook Road meandered through a couple of smaller towns and was basically a county-line road, but at least it was a straight shot. By then, the sun had gone down. Maddie and Eli had fallen asleep. Lindsay was reading fan fiction on her phone, the LED light casting a blue-white sheen over her silhouette. Charles had been driving down Haycook Road for half an hour when something outside got his attention. Off to his left, the horizon seemed somehow brighter all of a sudden. Where the world beyond the cone of his headlights had been endless black mere moments ago, now it was possible to see the tree line where it touched the sky. Lights, he realized. A ton of lights out that way. What was out there? Mentally, he checked his location. Only a few miles outside of town now, but coming from this alternate direction was screwing up his internal GPS. Could that be the high school out that way? The lights of the parking lot? Maybe the baseball field? No, it wasn't the school, and it wasn't the UPS warehouse. He was nowhere near Industrial Park. In a moment, Charles would have his answer. Up ahead, a back road leading to a farm and a break in the trees. He'd be able to see what was on the other side, where those lights came from. As the intersection with the farm road raced to meet him, Charles braced himself. Those lights... Light towers, he could see now, the industrial kind used by the highway department. At least two dozen of them set up around... around tents. Massive red and yellow striped tents. Were they... they were... circus tents. Despite his utter shock and confusion, Charles smiled. A circus? Right there on the outskirts of town? The idea seemed ludicrous, but there it was, all lit up for anyone to see. The circus fairgrounds, the red and yellow tents forming a scalloped skyline. The entrance, a red, heart-shaped threshold adorned with red and white light bulbs. And a sign that Charles couldn't quite make out from this distance. Where did the circus come from? He hadn't heard anything about a circus coming to town. Was it brand new? Had they finished setting it up? The area around the fairgrounds was empty. No parked cars, no trucks, and no people. Was it closed? Would there be anyone there to stop him if he drove out there and walked around? He could say he was showing his kids. The kids. Charles dragged his eyes away from the circus tents to check on his children in the rearview mirror. 
little Madeline, still asleep, little Eli. He was staring back at Charles, as if he'd been awake for a long time, watching the back of his father's head with anticipation. Charles did not recognize the look his son gave him, had never seen anything like it, and it forced him to look away. He turned his attention quickly back to the road, just in time to see the earth shift unnaturally, and a giant tree stepped in front of the car. Charles felt a weight crushing his chest, cutting off his breath. His movement felt sluggish, his foot a rock requiring all his strength to lift off the gas pedal and slam down on the brake. All at once, things sped up and slowed down. The car skidded as it tried to obey his command. Momentum forced it to lurch ever onward. He was thrown forward, the safety belt digging into the skin on his neck. Lindsay screamed his name from somewhere far off. The tree, the massive oak, grew larger in the windshield. How had this happened? He hadn't veered off the road. The tree, was it a tree? Had moved, stepped in front of his car. It was coming up too fast now. Charles took his foot off the brake and swerved to the right. The right tires left the paved top of the road and hit gravel. Rocks and sediments spit up, clanging against the undercarriage of the car. Every ding and pop deafened his wife's scream. The swerve was going to work. The front of the car narrowly missed the edge of the tree. But now, in what had to have taken only microseconds to drive by, Charles got a better look. He saw that the coarse, grooved wood of the tree trunk was actually a tough, leathery hide. He followed what he thought was a tree trunk up, up over a slightly bended knee, realized he was looking at the belly of an animal, and continued to look up until he was face to face, pressed against the window, with an eye the size and color of an eight ball. Then he was past it. He pulled the car back onto the road and slammed on the brakes until the car stopped. In the back, both kids were crying. Lindsay reached back to touch them, reassure them. Everything was okay. Everything was fine. You're okay. Mommy and Daddy, everyone's okay. But she looked at Charles, demanding an answer. He let go of the steering wheel by stretching each one of his fingers. They felt numb. His neck burned where the seatbelt rubbed against it, and he couldn't unclick the belt fast enough. He practically ripped it off and fumbled for the handle at the door. Lindsay caught his arm. "'What was it?' she asked. That wasn't the question she wanted answered, though. He'd seen the look on her face before. She wasn't asking why he slammed on the brakes. She was asking why he almost killed them, why he put their children in danger. Had he fallen asleep? How could he be so stupid? How could she have married such a moron? "'We almost hit—' Charles's voice trailed off. Lindsay, still reaching back to rub the children's legs reassuringly, hushing them, waited for him to finish. "'It was an elephant,' Charles said as soon as he realized it. And as soon as he said it, he regretted it. Lindsay's expression hadn't changed. Had she heard what he said? Of course she did. She just didn't accept it. His answer provided no new information, so she didn't regard it as anything more than gibberish. "'But that's what he'd seen, right?' It must have wandered off from the circus, he said. The circus? This time her face changed. He wished it hadn't. Yeah, back there, Charles said. He looked in the rearview mirror, but he couldn't see the fairgrounds from this angle. He craned his head to the left to look out the driver's side window. The pain in his neck arced up the back of his scalp. He couldn't see the tents from there. He opened the door, 
pulling away from Lindsay's grip. She shouted at him to get back inside. He took two cautious steps. The road felt like it was sliding under him at first. Then everything righted. The burnt smell of rubber smeared on asphalt assailed his nose, but that wasn't the worst offender. It was his eyes. Had he gone blind? Was his vision blurred? He couldn't see the circus lights. He for sure didn't see an elephant in the road. He didn't see anything. No farms, no tree line, no horizon. The world around the car was, once again, endless black. There was nothing out there. Welcome to episode three of Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly, happy to be joined by another one of my semi-permanent co-hosts. This time, I welcome the author of the ambitiously titled blog, Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures, who is going to help me chronicle the afterlife adventures of Dead Man. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Doug Zavisha. How are you, Doug? Doing great, Ryan. How are you doing, sir? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining me. Thank you again all the time. I love having you on these shows. Are you excited to talk about Dead Man? I sure am. Good. Well, if you weren't, we, I'd, I'd have to do some emergency recasting. Um, for those of you listening, Dead Man, he's not just a Western film by Jim Jarmusch starring Johnny Depp. And if that's what you were expecting, seriously, how the hell did you stumble onto this podcast? Now, the Dead Man we are talking about is a superhero appearing in DC Comics. I, I think we're safe calling him a superhero, right? Even though his adventures aren't – they're not the same as Superman or Batman or Wonder Woman, but – but his adventures bring him to meet Superman and Batman, and I'm not so sure about well Wonder Woman tangentially, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know Aquaman and others. So yeah, we could call him a superhero, but that's certainly not how he starts out. Sure, but the thing that certainly sets Dead Man, whose real name is Boston Brand, apart from other superheroes, is that well, as his name suggests, he's dead. He's a ghost who is either blessed or cursed, depending on how you look at it, or depending on how he's feeling on that particular day, condemned either way to remain on Earth as an incorporeal spirit and use his supernatural abilities to fight evil. Does that basically sound like I got the gist of the character? Yeah, it does. Eh. Some big words, too. <laughs> incorporeal. There's like all sorts of syllables in that. Yeah. Uh, Doug and I have previously discussed Deadman and his origin on episode 15 of the Secret Origins podcast, which was just over a year ago, but it feels like a lot longer to me. Anyway. Yeah, it does. I, I would imagine especially for you, though. <laughs> I can't remember my life before podcasting. <laughs> it's only been it's at this point it has been less than two years for me but anyway if you listen to that episode recently or uh, somehow you have like a truly remarkable memory a lot of this episode will sound familiar but because we're starting something new though let's offer our own sort of personal context for the character how we met dead man and what we think about him doug how and when did you first discover the character 
I first discovered the character of Dead Man in uh, the reprint in 19... I think they were cover dated in 1985. It, it collected a bunch of these strange adventures and um, some of the other appearances that Dead Man had had throughout the DC Universe. The reprints... When I found those, it was right around the time that I first found my first LCS, my local comic shop. And my mind was just whirling at all the product there. (laughs) But there was Dead Man shouting on the cover at me in beautiful Neil Adams art. And I want to say it was probably issue one of that series. And I picked it up alongside whatever issue I want to say of Crisis on Infinite Earths that was on the shelf around the same time. You know, I'm... It wasn't quite a Wednesday warrior at that point. I don't even know if comics were coming out on Wednesdays, but it was like this magical place called a comic shop, and here's all this great stuff. So I picked up those issues, and Dead Man's been a favorite ever since. For me, it would have been a couple of years after that. I might have seen him in like group shots of DC, or he might have shown up in a Batman or a detective issue or something that I was reading, but I think the first time he kind of pinged my radar was in Kingdom Come. Okay. Um, and it wouldn't, where certainly he had a, a very different look. He was basically just a skeleton with the costume. He didn't look as human and corpse-like, but just like a pure skeleton. But after or around the same time, I remember, I think I got the first book of the Mike Barron, Kelly Jones uh, miniseries, like the prestige okay. format one. And that's the only one of that series that I've ever read is just the first book. And I just, I liked the character. I liked the gimmick. There was something about the fact that he is a ghost and I like the fact that there are certain restrictions with him because with a lot of supernatural characters, and we're certainly going to see that on this podcast, with a lot of supernatural characters, they can do pretty much anything. And when, once you get into the magic users of DC, it's hard to find challenges for them. It's hard to find limitations to what they're capable of. And that can be a, a problem in terms of writing dramatic tension in the stories. Uh, not impossible, certainly, but I, I think it can be a challenge. I liked that with Dead Man, there were these built-in restrictions that, yes, he like he was a ghost. He had no physical form. He could inhabit a person. He could possess a person in order to move around, but that came with its own limitations. So I, I felt like they didn't cheat with him. Right. And and more than that, just I I love the look of the character, the costume. He's he's got like this all red, almost daredevil like well yeah, costume for his his daredevil performance. He was an acrobat, trapeze artist, but he's got like just this bald headed, white faced sort of corpse like visage. And yeah, it was just it was a character that as soon as I saw him, I was like, that's pretty cool looking. It's such a simple visual and just so stunning. Mm-hmm. And leave it to uh, who else but Carmine Infantino, who designed the character. I mean, same guy who did The Flash, who did Elongated Minutes, so many Silver Age characters, the Phantom Stranger. Yeah, he, he knew what he was doing when he came up with the character. A thing or two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts, like how you got into the character or, or your history with him? Uh, well, since those first issues, you know, the, those reprints, um, Dead Man was a character that I followed. Followed him through the various miniseries and the, like you said, the the Baron Jones. Uh, there was a uh, uh, Andrew Helfer scripted Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, praise be his name. Praise. We had to get that in there, right? <laughs> uh, four issue miniseries, and it's just. Dead Man is such oh Dead Man went into brightest day. I mean, he was the the mm-hmm. critical character there, at least in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. He's just so so versatile. He can go anywhere, he can do anything. He can team up with Batman one issue, he can have a romance story in another issue. He can be, you know, a supernatural story after that. 
when I discovered the character, he was already, what, created in 67. I discovered him in 85, so about 20 years later. So he was he had more appearances than I was aware of. And I just, everywhere that you would see, like, there's an old issue of Phantom Stranger. He's on the cover. Oh, my gosh, this guy's <laughs> everywhere. And it, it was a character that just really appealed to me. Is that why you chose to include him on your blog, Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures actually spun out of our Secret Origins conversations. And my intent was originally to focus on the challenges of the unknown there a bit. But the title of it gives me room to spread my wings, as it were. I'm not exactly sure how or when I'm going to get to them, but there was definitely that uh, there was a run of like five or six Challengers issues that had Dead Man and Swamp Thing together. Yes, I yes, right at the end of the series. Yeah, I don't know how and when I'm going to get to those, but at some point those will be those have to be covered on this podcast because oh, yeah. I think if I don't do, it, I don't know if anybody will. <laughs> That'll be a great conversation right there. Yeah. So long before we get to those Challengers issues, going forward on this show. The Dead Man episodes of this podcast, much like the Swamp Thing episodes, are going to follow the index format, at least for a while. We're kicking off with his first appearance on this episode, and then on subsequent episodes, we're going to cover the rest of the stories in Strange Adventures. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great to me. All right. Dead Man debuted in Strange Adventures issue 205, which had an October 1967 cover date, but would have actually hit newsstands on August 29th that year, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover, by Carmine Infantino and George Russos, depicts a pale and ghastly-looking circus acrobat in a garish red costume leaping off of the aerialist's bar as a gunman tries to shoot him in front of a crowd of spectators. One text blister on the left side reads, This man who was just murdered is our hero. His story begins one minute later. And a second text box at the bottom of the cover reads, Introducing Dead Man. What do you think of the cover to Strange Adventures 205? What a way to greet you. <laughs> you know, it, it, this is straight out of the mind of Arnold Drake right here. It's just, there's a text piece that's out there in certain collected editions that explains how he pitched it. And this must have been how he pitched it. But when he brought Carmine Infantino in on this, that's when this came together. And it, honestly, this is a, a great cover. Dead Man could be a little more uh, well-defined here. He looks very gaunt, very ghostly, but I think that's probably what they were going for for that first impression. Yeah, that text piece that you mentioned, if Arnold Drake's version is to be believed, Carmen Infantino kind of brought himself in on it, and he was sort of eavesdropping because he shared the office uh, with, Jack, with the editor at the time. And as Drake was kind of pitching it, uh, sort of sitting behind Jack Miller's like shoulder, like over his shoulder, he could see that Carmen Infantino was just kind of like encouraging him or kind of telling him to, you know, keep pushing on him and everything. And one of the big sticking points was the name Dead Man. Right. Uh, Because certainly this was during the code and everything. And uh, DC just, they didn't think they could publish something like that with that character with that name. You know, it would be another, gosh, was it? Two, three years when uh, when DC really started fighting back and resisting the code when they uh, with Green Arrow and Green Lantern. Right. I think it was the I think it was the Snowbirds Don't Fly. It was the heroin issue. Was when they first really started pushing against it. Well, and and right here on the cover they put Dead Man there, and mm-hmm. that logo just looks so so developed. Yeah. You know, it's almost as though as you were saying. Carmine Infantino's in the same room as this conversation's happening, and I can't help but wonder if maybe he was sketching out that logo. <laughs> because it looks more thought up or thought into than the cover itself at some point. Yeah, that's kind of true. And, I, and why they don't use that one more on collected editions is beyond me. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely got the spooky kind of eerie look with his face kind of in the blank space of the D. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it's also it's an action-packed cover. You've got a circus set up. You've got a character that looks like a ghost. You've also got a sniper rifle. It's there's a whole lot going on in this, and and we'll see that as we get into the story. So and clowns and an elephant and <laughs> and a crowd. Right. Usually, just one of those things would be enough. But yeah. All right, people, we are going to take a short promo break, and after the commercial, Doug and I are going to turn to the first page and leap into the first story of Dead Man. Don't blink or you miss it, or whatever the audio version of blinking is. I don't even think it's – your oral sense isn't something you can voluntarily shut down, can you? Anyway. I'm not so sure. We'll be back. We'll be back. Fine. It's fine. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, (laughs) romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass! We just turned on him! (laughs) And yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book Who is this fantastic figure, this eerie emanation who stands surveying his own burial rites? What evil was it that thrust him past the threshold of death, and how can we still see his ghastly guise? Now, learn the nerve-shattering secret behind the most astounding character in the history of comics, Dead Man. We open at a funeral, the funeral of Boston Brand. But Boston himself, appearing as Dead Man, addresses the readers, telling us that one of the people gathered around his coffin is responsible for his murder. Who Has Been Lying in My Grave is written by Arnold Drake, with pencils by Carmen Infantino, inked by George Russos, and edited by Jack Miller. The traveling circus doesn't have the same allure it used to have, but the one thing that still draws the crowds is the spectacle of a daredevil aerialist like Boston Brand. As Boston prepares for his next act for the Hill Brothers Circus, Lorna Hill comes to his trailer to tell him the circus owes money to the bank that she can't afford to pay. Boston says he got her an extension, not simply to protect her interests, but his own. Since Lorna's father died, Boston owns 20% of the circus and wants to protect his investment. He continues to get dressed, pulling on a skin-tight mask over his face that makes him appear corpse-like. Lorna accuses him of pretending to be a tough guy. She knows Boston could make more money at more popular circuses. He stays with the Hill Brothers for sentimental reasons. Boston scoffs at the notion that he's soft-hearted. He tells her the attraction of a trapeze artist is the possibility that he'll fall. People come to the circus hoping to see him die. At the same time Boston is spreading this sunny message, one of the strongmen, Tiny, pounds on the door to tell Boston it's time for his act to begin. Tiny pounds the door so hard that he breaks it down. Boston calls Tiny a moron and walks off. Tiny feels bad, but Lorna does her best to reassure him that Boston actually likes Tiny. That's why he ridicules him. 
As Boston makes his way to the big tent, he witnesses a local sheriff's deputy bracing Vashnu, the vaguely Indian fortune teller, or wise man as the posters call him, or character analyst as Boston describes him. Boston shames the cop into leaving Vashnu alone, but the deputy swears he'll be watching them closely. Vashnu thanks Boston and tells him the goddess Ramakushna watches over his fate. Boston only cares about divine intervention if it turns into ticket sales. Vashnu believes Ramakushna will bestow a powerful gift on Boston sometime soon, but in the meantime, he cannot understand how a godless cynic can be so favored by his goddess. Boston continues his way to the tent. On his way, he catches one of the carnies sneaking a drink. Boston punches the man, Heldrick, and fires him there on the spot, having warned him about drinking on the job. Heldrick promises Boston will regret this. Then Boston sees Leary, the carnival barker, skimming more than his usual take of ticket sales for one of the rides. Boston says he's always known that Leary was a thief, and he accepted it, but his greed needs to stop. Leary says Boston's mouth will get him into trouble someday. Finally, arriving at the tent, Boston, as dead man, climbs the ladder as the barker announces the feat to a huge gathering of spectators. There are no nets or security measures of any kind, just the trapeze and the dead man. Boston begins his amazing performance, stepping off the platform and beginning his swing. A sudden crack, like a shot, pierces the air, and Boston plummets to the ground below. A clown pronounces Boston dead. Carnies rush over to cover his body. Lorna cries and Tiny comforts her. Vashnu speculates that this was just the first part of the awesome fate that Ramakushna has planned for Boston Brand. We go to the circus burial, which is never solemn. Boston's funeral happens to be on a gorgeous day and in a plot where this kind of bugs me a little bit that they would have an actual set spot for a funeral for a circus player, but it is what it is and it's punctuated by lots of sadness and ends with all of the circus folk leaving, but Tiny remaining at the graveside berating Boston for leaving them alone. At which point the narrator says, let us turn back the clock and we see the story from Boston's perspective. We see him being shot and he says, my chest is on fire. Then he's on the ground, landing without a scratch. We see Toby covering him, but from Boston's perspective of what we had just seen a few pages earlier. Lorna and Tiny are mourning Boston, and then Dora, the baby elephant, begins explaining the events to Boston. So Boston does what anyone would do at this point. He runs out to get some air, and he happens to run right into a rainstorm. It's raining, which feels good, but he finds one of Professor Quigley's trained mice and thinks, well, I better get the mouse back to Quigley. So Dead Man goes to pick the mouse up, but his hand goes through him, at which point the mouse continues to explain, but Boston is just, he's just not listening. So maybe Rama better take on a talking tree, and that's when we discover that Ramakushna is speaking to Boston through Dora the baby elephant and Professor Quigley's mouse, and trying to clear things up, giving Boston the assignment to find his killer. The tree tells Deadman to find his killer, but Deadman declares he cannot catch the killer if he can't even touch a mouse. Deadman finds Tiny standing by Boston's grave, which at this point, again, it's sunny, so quick rainstorm, I suppose. He touches Tiny, and the strong man freezes. Boston panics, presuming that Rama gave him the touch of death. But before he can take that any further or mourn the loss of Tiny, he realizes Tiny is still breathing, and he merges into Tiny. He becomes Tiny. He can use Tiny's eyes, his ears, his mind. Once again, Boston Brand lives as a dead man through his friend Tiny. 
Boston decides to begin the hunt for his killer, walking away in Tiny's body. Leaving the cemetery, we'll call him Tiny Boston, wonders about the glow that's around him, which, as readers, we can clearly see there's a bright green glow around Boston Brand or, or Tiny or Tiny Boston. A passerby stops him outside the cemetery, and Boston realizes that he appears normal to that passerby. Laughing at this discovery, he convinces the other guy that, well, Tiny must be crazy. So the guy just leaves him alone. Boston surmises that Heldrick is the likely suspect and heads straight for his quarters. Remember, he did fire him, so why he still has quarters, only to find that there's a drug deal going on. Heldrick is selling the constable that was bothered, that was shaken down Vashnu earlier a pound of snow for 50 grand in cash. <laughs> Boston rips the tent, which has a really nice window that he's looking through. But at any rate, as Tiny, Tiny Boston rips the tent and demands the dream dust, the snow, the poppy juice, opium, baby, and gets into a fight with Heldrich, who Tiny then hurls into the constable. Knocks a kilter the constable's hat, and the corrupt cop draws his gun and bang! Just as Boston is realizing that he has possibly endangered Tiny, the constable is fired upon Tiny. Heldrick and the cop decide to dispose of Tiny, but the strong man was merely grazed by the bullet, knocked unconscious. Boston then decides to try leaving Tiny's body and going into the cop's body and discovers he can merge with anybody. So he slugs Heldrick and then jumps back to Tiny as the circus crowd all start to realize there's a ruckus. Real cops in a car marked PD take Heldrick and the constable away, while Tiny explains to Lorna how Boston told him all about the drug trafficking so that he could stop it. Lorna begs Tiny to stick around, and Tiny Boston says that he will, while Boston thinks he's going to have to leave to find his killer. At which point, the story ends with, This is Dead Man, the spirit of one man in the bodies of others, moving from life to life to find the man who brought him death. Follow him in the strangest adventure series of them all. Alright, thank you very much for that. My first thought taking this from the beginning, looking at the opening splash page. Okay, we've already got a guy in a weird costume, looking like death, talking directly to the audience. But at this funeral site, we have a clown, and we have this Vashnu, again, this vaguely Eastern Indian fortune-teller guy with a turban, and just wearing a sort of diaper loincloth around his waist. Like, guys, put on a a suit for the funeral. (laughs) Well, the clown's got his suit on. <laughs> he does, and a nose. And, and the and hair makeup. and the yeah, makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it's comics. It's the visual representation. You understand that this is, these are circus folk. This isn't a normal occasion, but it's still, it's one of those things where I look at it, I'm like, really? <laughs> Come on, it's a funeral. Show some class, people. Yeah. <laughs> this is why nobody likes carnies. This is who they are, right? Yeah, this is. Uh, what were your overall thoughts of the story? It's got a lot packed into it. And I like how they split the story by starting it at the gravesite, then come back around midway, right where we split it at the gravesite, but give you essentially the two lives of Boston Brand. You know, the first being his life as a partial owner of the Hill Brothers Circus, and then the second being that new life that he's just entered into. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story itself is 
I mean, it's phenomenal for being a late 60s story. Infantino's art is absolutely on point, and no page in this story has more than six panels. And he uses six panels frequently, but he, he rearranges them in such a way that sometimes they're rectangular, sometimes they're a mix, sometimes they're vertical, horizontal. It's just, it, it's very well done, and they pack a lot into it. And most it, of the pages don't have that many panels. I mean, right, certainly right, right. Like once he's dead and once we need to get through a lot of exposition, they do. A lot of pages have fewer than that. And Infantino is, in this story, is a master of knowing when to put in detail and when to put in nothing at all. Mm-hmm. You know, once Dead Man's dead, the backgrounds fade away a lot because at that point our focus is on relating to Boston and finding out what he's finding out as he's finding that out. You know, he can go to bodies. Oh, this is great. We don't care then that there's trees or bushes or circus tents behind him. We're focusing on that journey that Boston's discovering. Right. And one of my favorite little things about the art and about what Infantino did in the design, although if you hear tell of it, it wasn't actually Infantino's idea. It came from Arnold Drake. But the look of Boston Brand without the costume, when we first see him on page two, that third panel, that close-up, is he's not pretty boy leading man conventionally attractive. His face is busted. Like his, his yeah. nose is broken and everything. Like this is this is a guy who has had a rough life, who has probably fallen a lot, and and yeah, from the the write up from the introduction, it looks like that was Miller's design. Like he looked at the character that uh, Infantino drew, and he's like, probably you know, break his face a little bit. Yeah, a little little too pretty is what uh, yeah. he said at one point, and, and he looks like somebody that could have been in the ring in the opposite corner from Ted Grant. Yeah, exactly. That was actually my first thought, too, yeah. Yeah, he does have that sort of boxer's pug nose, that broken face, yeah. And it's just, it's a bit of characterization that we, first of all, we rarely see in heroic characters in comics. But certainly, like, before he opens his mouth, I mean, you can just look at that and you can kind of just tell the type of character this is, probably what his attitude is. And it feels in keeping when he's having this conversation with Lorna. He tries to do everything he can to convince her that he's not soft-hearted, he's not sentimental, he's just in this for the profit, and he kind of has to have that emotional detachment because he says, you know, the reason people come to the circus is for the chance that I will die. It's like they want to see that. That's something that they can't see on television, they can't see in the movies. You know, right. it's it's the one live act that is completely beyond anyone's control. That's the story that they can tell for years, that they were there that day. They saw that. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's really driving him, or at least mm-hmm. that's what he's telling Laura. Right. And it's also a nice bit of kind of thematic foreshadowing that it tells us that this is a character who basically his whole life was leading him towards death. Like, he lived to die every night. And there's just something that seems sort of fitting that this will be our character who is dead before the story is halfway over. And this is what his new life was going to be. So I, I just I really liked that setup and and how tight the story is. Like you said, they, they throw a lot into this one. But just as an origin, just to establish who this character is, I've always thought this is one of the uh, the better, more creative and... It grabs you, and it, it, the the setup, the premise for this, is so perfect. And that we, again, we talked about this back on Secret Origins. Like, this lends itself so well to a dramatic adaptation, either in film or television. And uh, and with everything that's been cranked out, it hasn't happened yet. I know. I think we've got to get our pitch in because I think we, <laughs> I, we I think when we talked about it, we came up with it's a supernatural quantum leap. 
do it yeah. as a serialized version of that. It seems like it'd be perfect for the Netflix type platform. Mm-hmm. You know, to take it where every episode can be something different. You know, just like every appearance of Dead Man can be something different. Mm-hmm. I, I want to see it. And certainly, be like being part of a circus, part of a traveling community, always having to jump into different, like this, this slow mystery. Because this is a big deal. Like his first appearance, he has this mission to find out who his killer is. But we get no sense of who it is. In fact, we never see the killer. And this is one of the first things. Like when I really re-looked at this and scrutinized it, I was like, we never see no the, his death. We never see anybody shoot him. The only appearance of a rifle or a, a gunman is on the cover of this issue. And I actually wondered if this had more to do with what we were talking about before with the Comics Code Authority, that they wouldn't let them show the death of their main character on on the page. Because he's just swinging, we get a crack sound effect, and the image of him falling, like, we don't get a good dramatic shot of him, like, a bullet ripping through him, we never see that. We no. don't see him falling and hitting the ground. The way Infantino organized it, it's almost like he goes out of his way not to show us any more of the death than we absolutely need to just to kind of get a sense of what happened. And I imagine that's probably got to do with the code and the fact that this was still 1967 and and they were kind of slow moving before they could get into that more gruesome and violent avenues of of artistry. And, And you know what? I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly how it is. You know, it adds to the mystery of who shot him. You know, we see, as you say, we see the hook on the cover, or the, the hand on the cover, or the claw, or, right. you know, it, it's not wonderfully rendered at that point, and certainly different than what it'll become <laughs> later on in the series. But we don't see where the bullet comes from. We we don't see him hit, as you said. It, it adds to the unknown. Mm-hmm. I do have a couple more notes on the the story itself. When we meet Boston at the beginning of this issue, his name Boston is in quotes, Mm -hmm. as though that's not truly his name. And (laughs) at at no point do I recall him having a name other than Boston. However, as we take this journey, we, we might discover that together. Yeah, that's true. We actually, we don't, in this story, like, I kind of use, you know, foreknowledge of what, what was to come in, in part of my write-up. We don't get the name of the circus. We don't get Lorna's last name in this. Like, I don't, I don't think they ever mentioned the Hill Brothers or, or her father's name or anything in the story. It's, she's just Lorna, and it's part of the circus. They mention Ringling Brothers as a competition and another right. circus that Boston could join. But there, there's definitely a lot about the established, what we know of Dead Man today that is planted but not explicitly laid out in this first issue. It definitely feels like it's it's part of a story and there's a lot more to come. Still and keeping that like when he when he's still in his dressing room, I love that he compares manning or he compares running a circus to managing a kindergarten class where every kid has a machine gun at his gun desk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And Lauren, I just can't take that. Yeah. She she looks away. She's like, "Oh my god." They establish a lot of side characters and they do it well because once he's climbing up that ladder, you're like, oh, oh there's a lot of people who hate Boston. And yeah. once he dies, it's like, okay, there's quite a few suspects we have here. And that's something that comes back around, as you say, you know, knowing what we know now, that comes back around later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's certainly something that Jeff Johnson and Pete Tomasi and whoever else was writing Brightest Day tried to hammer home was that Boston in life was not a great guy. Yeah, yeah. The the one art note that I had is, man, Vashnu is ripped. <laughs> yeah, from panel to panel, it's, yeah, you kind of, you think he would be like the, the sort of 
skin and bones, yeah, almost skeletal figure, but. Yeah, he's been working out. Must have been like lifting up some heavy equipment while they were working. Exactly. He's the true circus strongman. <laughs> I love the artistic flair that uh, the touch that Carmen Infantino gives when Dead Man possesses Tiny or somebody that he actually has this glow about him. It's a great way of telling the audience, okay, this isn't Boston. This isn't Tiny. It's Tiny Boston, as you said. Which right, I love right. It. You know, this is Dead Man inside a character. We see that, but then he goes one step further and addresses that. Oh, Boston sees this, but nobody else does. Like he actually is like, "Hey, yeah. do you see me glowing with radiation?" The guy's like, "What are you crazy?" It's like, "Oh, yep. okay." So this is clearly something that we can understand that helps us differentiate a possessed person. We're in on the secret. Right. But, you know, much like something in, like, A Christmas Carol with a ghost of Christmas past or future or something, like, they can't see it. Like, the common person doesn't see this. I like that. Yeah, that is a great piece that helps you identify Dead Man throughout. Mm Mm-hmm. In terms of the drug bust at the end when uh, Tiny (laughs) overhears them, um... I don't know what Arnold Drake knew about drugs or drug <laughs> slang, and and maybe in the 60s these names were different, but when he says snow, that's a, a slang term for cocaine. Right, right. But when he comes out and he says, I came for the dream dust, you know, snow, poppy juice, opium, baby. I was like, okay, the poppies, opium, those, that's not, that's not cocaine. Are, are they selling cocaine or are they selling heroin? Because these are two different things. Right, and maybe part of that is Drake, or maybe Drake was just writing that into the character, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We'll, we'll give him benefit, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. We'll say Boston. Oh, I think Boston would know, but... Yeah, probably. Tiny might not, though. Tiny might not. He's, yeah, he's keeping in character. The yeah, I also don't think doesn't... Tiny would be that verbose, either. Right, right. It's a, another sort of weird sort of conventional thing that our final showdown, like the, our big fight in this issue... We don't see Dead Man. We don't see our hero in costume doing the heroic like fight. You know, we see him. He he. All of his fights and all of his action have to be done through proxy. It go. It kind of flies in the face of everything you know about superhero stories and 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 what adventure comics are supposed to be. Well, and that's just it. Is at this point, it's not necessarily superhero, but it is definitely adventure. A strange adventure. And we yes, and we do have that glow to help us delineate who's who. Mm-hmm. What did you think of kind of the two pages eleven and twelve when Dead Man is sort of revisiting his death and and sees Ramakrishna through these uh, <laughs> her own proxies with the elephant and the mouse in the tree? I think the elephant should have stuck around. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But that's um, that might be the saddest little tree Carmine Infantino ever grew. <laughs> And, and I like how they punctuated it with the little thunderbolt and lightning behind him. But um, this this is a good form for Rama to take, at least at this point. However, jumping around like that, I, I almost would have rather Rama held on to one aspect. Mm. But it does show the the vastness of Rama at this point. Right. And the unknown again. And I wonder if... This was done because they didn't know how they wanted to interpret Rama visually or if they didn't know if they could or whether we would ever see a sort of a physical, like a, a more or less humanoid representation of her or it, whatever, um, that we would only see Rama spoken through animals or inanimate objects or things like that. And this would just kind of be a, a or- shorthand for that. 
Right, or via Vashnu delivering messages from Rama. Right. Which he kind of disappears in this. So. Yeah, he, he's, he's in and out. Yeah. This feels like, as an origin story, it's, it's, it feels like a good first chapter. You know, by the end we have a bit of closure of just one tiny aspect of it. Like, he knows what he's supposed to do, but certainly his story is not over. And, and I mean, that's that's true of most superheroes in this type of fiction, is their, their story never really goes on. But this feels almost like the origin. We know who, how, We know how he gets the status quo, but his story is really about finding the killer, and we've barely scratched the surface of that. Right. And that's something that we will see continue for, you know, multiple issues to come. Yeah. Overall, though, as you said, I, I really like it. This is a strong first chapter. Um, I think Infantino's art is really, really good. Now, it's it's going to be funny in subsequent chapters when we're talking about Neil Adams' art. Um, and certainly when you're looking at this in the collection, you kind of say, well, this is nowhere near as good or as detailed or as you know dynamic as Neil Adams. But just taken on its own, this is Infantino doing some really good stuff. Yeah, it truly is. And different stuff, too. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not known for this type of story. Right. Or at least not why um, he did this type of story, but the things that he's more famous for are the Flash and Elongated Man and, you know, superheroes, true superheroes. Right. I almost got to feel like he was just he was on the edge of channeling a little bit of Steve Ditko, but he wasn't going to go that far. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can see that. But yeah. My my final thoughts are I, I really like this chapter. I'm looking forward to continuing the story in subsequent episodes. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is going to be a fun, strange adventure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on this first chapter? Uh, as you said, it's a, it's a fun first chapter. Um, but this this creative team changes quickly and almost wholesale. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the... The only time that we'll be seeing Infantino and Drake together, I believe. Right. Trying to think through. This hasn't really been retold very often beyond Secret Origins. I mean, we, we'll we get flashbacks to it, but not a wholesale retelling or reimagining of it. Mm-hmm. You know, as many things happen with, with reboots, Dead Man kind of hit where he needed to hit right away. And the, the the origin story was strong enough and unique enough that they never really felt the need to retool it too much. Yeah, the only thing I was kind of thinking, like looking back, is if we were to revisit this, and I'm, it, I, I think it has been a little bit, but like you said, more or less, like in, in like one or two panels of flashbacks, is probably like taking a little bit more time with his last time on the trapeze. And right. drawing out his act of like swinging and the gunshot and his fall to death and everything like that, but because it's so glossed over in this one, but I think were this story to be retold today, we would spend a lot more time with that. Oh yeah, and, you know his like last five minutes on Earth. And the story itself is it's enhanced more so than retold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whenever it is revisited. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. All right. Well, Doug, thank you very much. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun going over Dead Man stories in subsequent episodes. I um, think so, too. The next time we do this will be Midnight the Podcasting Hour, Episode 8. Look for that one in February, people. 
until then, Doug, where else can people find you? On the blogosphere or online or looking for comic book reviews? Uh, well, thanks, sir. Um, I I have two blogs, as you've already mentioned. Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures. Blogspot.com is where I'll cover things that are not Doom Patrol related. And if you're looking for Doom Patrol related coverage, also created by Arnold Drake, by the way, uh, check out My Greatest Adventure 80.blogspot.com. Uh, those are the two blogs that I work on. Uh, probably the Doom Patrol one, uh, Tales of My Greatest Adventure 80. Or no, <laughs> I'm mixing myself up. My greatest adventure 80.blogspot.com is the Doom Patrol. And um, that one gets updated a little more frequently as it shadows or mirrors the Waiting for Doom guys. Whenever they put a new episode out, I'll put up new content. And then in between episodes, I'll also drop things every once in a while. And now that we have a Doom Patrol series, which this is kind of a nice golden age we're in right now with a Doom Patrol series and a Dead Man series coming out. So. Uh, as far as that goes, you can find reviews of things like Doom Patrol and Dead Man over at Comicosity.com, where I am currently uh, writing some stuff for them. Check that out, and definitely I look forward to having you back again in uh, 10 weeks. <laughs> Alrighty, sounds good, Ryan. Alright, take care, Doug. You too, sir. Thank you. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Between the Pages, Chuck Rodriguez, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, David Bayer Jr., Dr. G, Nerdologist, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Rougeau, The Hammer Strikes, Hixie Flangsgiving, that's at reading underscore Hicks, Irredeemable Shag, Jacob Edwards, at Man Punch It, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford, John D. Knoll, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Laurel, at Mountainflower1, Longbox Crusade, Matches Balone, Mike, at McGee underscore Gorgo, Pearly Pod, Pod Dylan, Radio vs. the Martians, Relatively Geeky, World Spine Podcast, Shane, at DC Deadman Fan, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Slangwood Scott, Swamp Thing, at DC World Swampy, Tony Wolf, 2CO, Treasury Comics, 2 True Freaks, Valhalla 130, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zavisha. Facebook likes and shares came from Abba Daba, Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, Ben Avery, Billy Lacasse, Carson Van Zant, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Time Machine, David Foster, Gotham Shiorin, Jacob Edwards, Jared West, Jason Pope, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Laurel Phillips, The Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Matthew W. Parmenter, Michelle Thibodeau, Mike Gillis, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Scott Rowland, Shag, and Siskoid. Last episode, Ben Avery and I got tons of great feedback on the Fire & Water website for our coverage of Swamp Thing's first appearance in House of Secrets 92. We will address that feedback in the next Swamp Thing show. Until then, I've got a few iTunes reviews from some of my friends here at the network. The first five-star review comes from the Irredeemable Shag. An expertly produced and engaging listen. 
Ryan and his rotating stable of guests do a fantastic job shining a light on the darker corners of the DC Universe. It's always tricky recapping a horror story, as it can lose its punch in the retelling. However, this podcast keeps the reader interested, and the big reveal of the horror story packs the same punch as if reading it. Looking forward to the coverage of Swamp Thing, Spectre, Dead Man, and much more. Highly recommended. Thank you very much. The next review comes from Rob Kelly. Ryan Daly is a top-flight podcaster, as anyone who listened to his Secret Origins podcast knows. Now he turns his attention to the classic horror and supernatural comics that DC put out in the 70s and 80s, featuring a rotating list of guests and subjects. Great stuff. And finally, over on the Canadian iTunes site, Siskoid wrote, I love the horror host idea, and the show is good once the hosts get into the various DC horror series as well. Ryan Daly does it again, folks. Secret Origins wasn't his one-hit wonder. God, I hope not. Big thanks to Rob, Shag, Siskoid, and all of the other listeners who supported the show on Facebook and Twitter. You guys are awesome, and I greatly appreciate your support. Next Monday, you can hear the debut episode of Batman Nightcast by me and Chris Franklin. It's a new show covering Batman stories after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Then, in two weeks, be back here for episode four of Midnight, when Paul Hicks and I review the Night Force preview story from New Teen Titans 21. Really looking forward to that one. Oh, is that a bell I hear? Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.